I'm absolutely thrilled to be speaking to Andy Benn, the uh, mayor of Greater Manchester. I started following his career really with interest on the 22nd of April 2009. It was a day that I'll never forget, and I'm sure it's a day he'll never forget. He was the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport. He spoke with passion, courage, conviction at LFC. There was two minutes of chanting from the crowd, justice for the 96. He stopped with respect, then carried on. And that day he proved he was a man of the people. He's an amazing person and in my humble opinion, and we won't go down this road, but in my humble opinion, he should be Prime Minister of this country. Uh, that is another story. Andy Burnham, thank you for joining me. It's great to be with you, Pete. We've promised to do this for a long time, haven't we? We finally got it together, it's, yeah. but it's great to be able to chat. Yeah. That day changed your life. It did. Um, it, if I look back now, it was a very big crossroads where I had a choice the direction pointing Westminster to carry on doing what I was doing or in many ways the, the, the sign that was pointing back home, you know, got back in touch with people. And the way I've described it is that day when I stepped out to address the cop, I knew in my heart that I was stepping to the edge of the abyss between the government I was in and the people I'd grown up with. It was that, it was that simple. And to be honest, I'd agonised about whether I should go right up to that day. And it was my younger brother, John, who said, look, only go and if you're going to go and do something for them. If you're not, don't go. And it was those words, really, that kind of I dwelt upon, thought about, and I had kind of made a, a kind of decision to do something for the families. Um, but in some ways, that was me taking my first steps out of Westminster, because even though I stayed there for another six or seven years afterwards, I kind of, had, if you like, checked out, <laughs> if you like, you know, from the kind of, the world of Westminster, the establishment and all, and all of that. And I, and I don't have any regrets, but yeah, that was a defining moment. Staying with you that day, and as an artist myself for 50 years of being on stage, I know stage fright, I know fear, I know whether an audience is turning against me. It's something you can never explain to anybody in the world yeah. unless they've been in that position. And so I've got goose pimples, I get upset yeah. talking about this. Yeah. When I sat there watching and listening and that space when they were shouting justice for the 96 what was going through your mind i can remember that day vividly everything about it you know the the, the weather it was like the actual weather of the the game day wasn't it you know it was similar breezy bright chilly sort of day i can remember driving to anfield uh i texted my brother on the way that same brother said God, I don't want to worry you, Anne, but I'm in the Anfield Road end. You can't get anywhere. You know, there's thousands of people there. And um, you know, an Evertonian like me, but had been religiously to the um, to the service for years. And, you know, I knew something big was happening. I wasn't naive about that at all. I knew everything about it, you know, because I've been at the other semi-final on the same day, and I think people know that. Um but when my brother said that, I was the tension was building inside, you know, that knot, just that knot in my chest, you know, a complete tight knot. And I knew something was going to happen. I knew that Steve Rotherham had invited me so that something could happen. I, I kind of had that sense. I knew, you know, knew what my role was. And the only thing I can say, really, Pete, to answer your question is, it was something of a relief when the first shout came because I knew they would come and I was waiting for them to come. I wanted them to come in a funny kind of way. And I think it was that release when that 
came and I just then was able to stand back, stand back and let people say mm. justice for the 96. And it makes me, it makes me emotional just to think about it. That, in some ways, helped at that moment, you know, just because the dam was breaking and it had to, and it was a kind of relief to see it starting to happen. And that was a piece of history in your life and a piece of history with Liverpool that will never be forgotten. No, it, it won't, will it? And, um, you know, as I say, it's just life can just put you in a situation sometimes, can't it, where you just kind of have to see that and feel that, don't you? And I did, you know... If Peter Hayne had filled in his expenses properly, I wouldn't have been standing there in front of the cop. Because if you remember, he had to resign in early um, January 2008. Uh, James Pennell, who was Culture Secretary, got moved to Department of Work and Pensions. And then Gordon unexpectedly rang me and asked me, would I go to Culture? So, you know, quirks of fate, things that you never could predict, got me in as culture secretary for the year that Liverpool was celebrating Capital of Culture. I was in the city a lot, I was talking to Steve all the time, and I knew that invite was coming at some point. So I kind of knew, my, in my mind, I was building to this. Yeah. And that's why I agonised about it with the family. I knew it was a moment like that. And I knew, I could feel the sort of, the sort of burden of responsibility being almost loaded onto me, really. And, um, I, yeah, and that's, that's how I... How I see it and in some ways it wasn't about me it was me being there let those voices come off the cop and go into every single living room in the land that yeah. night and remind the country that this was an unresolved injustice well many people discovered you after that you mentioned gordon gordon brown and tony blair difference as politicians i think gordon has really come into his own i liked him as a, a prime minister but i also think right now he's really come into his own definitely i i always said that you know history would be a, a kinder judge of gordon brown than the media ever were when he was in in government i mean he had a lot of bad luck he made some of it himself you know made some mistakes but i, I can only describe i mean tony blair for formidable uh, whatever people think of the decisions, but a formidable politician in, in every respect and had the kind of full skill set, if you like. I think Gordon found it harder to be Prime Minister than Chancellor because, it, it, you know, you've got to have that very massive communication skills, but also a kind of an emotional intelligence, which I'm not sure, you know, always um, kind of had that same instinctive response as, as Tony. But working with the both of them, I would just say Gordon was always the one that had a care for you individually in that he, he rang me that minute I left the cop that afternoon. I, I literally was walking into the centenary stand for a cup of tea with Margaret and the families and the phone was going GB calling and I thought, oh my God, he's going to say, yeah. you've caused me another problem. You know, Why did you go and not tell me? Because I hadn't told him I was going to be there. And I thought that's what I was going to get, a bit of a hairdryer down, down the phone. Um, but he did the opposite. Yeah. He said, I'm so glad you did that. You were right to do that. Well done. You've done the right thing. Yeah. And I, you know, those are the moments in life you remember as well, aren't they? I, I will always remember that moment. He gave me permission to raise it at the cabinet the next day. And after a conversation where not every member of the cabinet supported me when I was calling for disclosure, and he, he summed up the cabinet discussion and said, well, I've heard everyone's points of view, but we're going to back Andy on this. Yeah. If I live to be 100p, I will never, ever forget that moment. You've mentioned two politicians there. You're a politician. Do you think politicians have lost their way uh, because of fake news and because of social media? 
which hasn't helped them in any shape or form. And certainly Boris has definitely not helped them. I think it's more fundamental than that, although I'll come to your point about social media. I think Westminster makes people lose their way when they get there. You know, you build a political career aiming towards Westminster. And Steve Rotherham would say the same. And you get there and you kind of find you can't do the things that you thought you would be able to do. You're told to vote a certain way, you're told to speak in a certain way, you're told to stick to certain lines. And and that becomes the problem because this is what I was describing a moment ago. You know, you start to kind of lose a sense of who you are and why you're doing it and what you're all about because you just, you know, and, and the official line of the government I was in was we looked at Hillsborough, the Stuart Smith, and that's it, finished. And so... If I'd have just played the game, I'd have had to stick with that. But obviously then it was the moment where I broke out of that. So I do think Westminster, the way it works, makes frauds out of good people because people go there, but they end up having to vote for things they don't believe in, and that's, that's a problem. But then if you add social media into that mix, it, it, it's, it's almost impossible for people to, to, to make it work. Let me interrupt you there, because you've just reminded me. I think Steve Rotherham, who's one of your closest mates and our, our mayor, said to me at one stage he was really excited about going to Westminster, but when he got down there, he was flabbergasted at what he was thrown into yeah. with all the what you can do and what you can't do, and he wasn't doing that. He went down to be a politician, to represent people. Well, and he made a massive impact. Well, we both did in that parliament that came after the Labour government years where we were then, he and I, absolutely going at it together because we hadn't got truth and we hadn't got justice at that point. But, you know, I remember that night, you know, whatever happens in his life, that night when Steve Rotherham stood up in the House of Commons and read the names of the 96 out, I mean, that was a piece of history as well. He made a huge impact down there, but but because he was a fish out of water, because he wasn't going to buy into the the norms. He, 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 and he didn't ever have the thing, I'm going to have a long career here and I want to be Minister. Steve went down there and, and, and was a proper MP, properly speaking for his people, his place. And obviously most don't do that. You know, yeah. most are parachute candles, many are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the thing was, I was there 16 years, eight of them before social media and eight after it was hard enough making sense of the place without it, <laughs> but when social media landed, yeah. oh my God, you know. I always describe it, as, I would say, it was, it was like playing a, a, a game, you know, going out onto a pitch. First half is, going, is football, and then the second half suddenly turns to rugby and no one told you. You know, that's how it, social media kind of changed everything. You just were getting battered on a daily basis. Within minutes of anything. Oh, yeah. uh, unbelievable, and yeah. you know, Social media had no understanding of the norms of Parliament and the way you have to work and the way you can't say everything you do. And, and I think it's made the job of, of our elected representatives down there even, even harder. And it's why I would say, and do say now, we should remove the parliamentary whip system. Let MPs be more independent advocates. Nine times out of ten, 19 times out of 20, you'd vote with what the Labour Party would want you to do. But we wouldn't lose anything, I don't think, by letting people be a little bit more themselves speak for yourself do what you think is right for your place um and yes have a regard for what your party wants you how it wants you to vote in parliament but don't batter people put under yeah. people under a sort of 
you know, a straight jacket where they can't actually... Because that just means that politics doesn't come over to people, doesn't it? It's interesting because a lot of young people uh, are not coming into politics, uh, but some are. But they've also got to have a certain strength, haven't they? Because you've got to have a backbone. You get so much garbage from anybody. Uh, What do you say to young people who would like to go into politics? Do it. You know, it's it's a... an amazing thing to do you can make change happen you know for for me if I just go back to that big sort of core thing for me of Hillsborough you know to the 19 year old me see that injustice be put in place by the authorities after the game and then to have a chance to do anything to uncover it yeah I can't I can't can't say what that means in terms of kind of sense of you know purpose and what why why uh, why you might why you might do it so young people today would have any kind of issue wouldn't they that they would feel yeah. equally passionate about it might be um i don't know it could be climate trans rights you name it it could be anything and they can do something i mean politics is frustrating it, you don't get what you want all the time you do have to take the brick bats but you can actually change people's lives and and that's the thing isn't it the other stuff is possible to, to bear if you know you can then do something that changes people's reality and I think it's not for everybody but yeah. you know I would still recommend it to anybody Talking about young people Liverpool lad uh, Heighton lad um, and then you went to Cambridge One thing Old I, Rome oh dear. I, was the, I yes. wasn't Heighton I was, uh, oh, I was born in the Old Rome I thought it was um, you lived in Heighton No no, no I, I um, was born in the Old in the Old Rome oh, right. um, I had a year in Formby uh, and then my dad got a job in Manchester. Oh, right. So, so that, that's the history. So I've, yeah. I've just been corrected. Great. <laughs> Cambridge. I found two things really interesting about Cambridge was, one, you're not allowed to have a job. And two, you're not allowed to have a car. So you're there to study, end of story, and no cars. Yeah. Now, I mention that for a reason, because you went from where you were to where you are. Yeah. Talking about young people, I am having a phone in for so many years despair with young people many of them who are stuck in their room with no personality because they're not meeting anybody because they're stuck on a phone etc you i found out were very interested in drama Mm -hmm. and i think drama should be used in schools oh sure for one reason you and i are going to violently agree here yeah Yeah. uh, because it it gives somebody personality and you know why you know why just to really pick up what you're saying because you know this people from this city or people from across the north you can't they kind of have a a sort of thing in the dna that says oh i'm not as confident as that person over there they can stand up and speak without any kind of fear whereas i think people coming from this part of the world sometimes hold back a little bit in those 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 situations i think drama if it was compulsory at schools i think it should be gives people an ability to speak in public, to feel confident speaking in public and to project their voice and themselves. And in life, those are essential life skills. Mm. They really are, aren't they? You know, we know that, don't we? Everyone believes in what they believe, but not everyone Mm. is confident enough to stand up and say it in front of people. Uh, And if you can build that into working class young people, uh, that confidence. I got to Cambridge and I felt fearful of the tap on the shoulder you know I always had that imposter syndrome always and I was in rooms with people who'd been to Eton and 
Winchester and all these places. And they would walk in and literally just hold forth as though they knew everything. And I'd be like, what? And I've always said it took me a good while to work out they were talking complete rubbish. But it, it looked good yeah. <laughs> and it sounded good. And hence they, they kind of got further than they should have done. But that's what public school gives you, isn't it? And I want that for all kids. You know, everyone should have that confidence in speaking and holding their own. I, I first discovered it. I had a friend, won't mention any names, whose child had a dreadful accident, a dreadful accident. And they insisted that he did drama afterwards, which gave him the confidence to deal with the problems he had after the accident. Yeah. That's how important it was. Job interviews is so important so to important. sell yourself. Yeah. So it really is important. So I, I, I just think that is such an important... Oh, point. definitely. My daughter is studying drama, A-level, um, has done drama. I've driven her back and forward to her drama uh, class for, for years, you know, and I've always massively encouraged her for these for these reasons, really, because maybe she'll have a career in drama, but more likely, yeah. it will just give her a, a bit of confidence that that will carry her on into into life, whatever she chooses to do. So, strongly agree with you. Before you became mayor, um, I've been going to Manchester back and forwards over the years, working in the cabaret industry. I used to run a couple of nightclubs in Manchester. Why, in your opinion, now? with the position you've got, is Manchester more successful or bigger than Liverpool in a different way? Um, I mean, I love both cities, as you know. It's not just political convenience for me to say that you know, I'm more connected to Manchester because my dad got a job there when I, when I was only one, you know, so I did spend more time there as a, as a kid and I was a Greater Manchester MP for, for, for 16 years. I've thought a lot about this because I want to see Liverpool um, where... It, it, it could and should be and he's and actually getting there to be honest but why is there a difference it's because Manchester has always had I think a diff different political tradition a different political culture in that it has been highly pragmatic um, and it's been sort of based on collaboration less conflict if I could put it that way you know Manchester has an ability and I'm inheriting this but you know it does have an ability to sort of do it behind closed doors I think Liverpool has a t tendency or preference to do it out in the open and uh, I just think there's a different political tradition and culture uh, I mean I don't fully understand how, how those things develop but but I think that has developed and but Liverpool is is I think changing and 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 get, getting to where uh, Manchester has been, and, and that's a good a good thing. I think that there's a practical reason. Your know, Manchester authorities, the ten of them, owned the airport. So you know, if you go back in time, they had a kind of reason. You know, they they were kind of bought in together on an economic um, journey, and and I think it took you know Liverpool longer to sort of see how the councils working together was a kind of core part of building collaboration and building a, 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 a you know. A better story, but I do think the the change here was oh eight, wasn't it? Mm. Liverpool capital of culture. I think things, oh, without any shadow of a doubt. Yeah, it was, and without it was brilliant to see. I felt it when I was in this. You know, I spent a lot of time here. I, I got made culture secretary early in that year, and I went into the DCMS first day, and I said, "Look, you can take the Royal Opera House out of my diary. You can take Covent Garden out of my my diary. Sadler's Wells, because I won't be doing all of those normal culture secretary things. I'm going to Liverpool for a year, and I saw it and I felt it." 
you know, Phil did a great job, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, absolutely. He, I watched him yeah. all through that year. He really did a just a phenomenal, a phenomenal job. And it was Liverpool's turning point. And I think even with the difficulties of more recent years, things are now being finally mm. flushed out, I think. And I think Liverpool will, will, will... I would say... I mean, it's hard to say. It's, it's unfair to put a time limit on it. But Liverpool's a number of years behind Manchester, but it's now moving in that, that same direction as Manchester. I'm talking to Andy Burnham. Um, I'm jealous of your trams. That's another story. Let's talk about transport. What's going on with transport? It is so important. The trains have, in my yeah. humble opinion, have lost their way yeah. in particular. Yeah, yeah, it's in meltdown, isn't it? Uh, I think privatisation has failed, to be honest. Um, you can't run a railway with all of these fragmented sort of <laughs> entities, you know, and everyone points the finger at each other when it goes wrong. It doesn't work, does it? I'm not saying that the old British railways was perfect, but I think it, it was more dependable and critically affordable than this we've got now, you know. If you walk up and get a, a, a kind of day standard return, an anytime return, they call it, at Manchester Piccadilly to London, do you know what, do you know what the price is? It's about 280 quid, 300 quid. Up. 369 quid. Uh, so it's, I say, I did a, got my team to do an analysis recently on, we got the, them to look at what you could get for that money at the same day when I was going to go to London and they found a flight to India, a flight to Jamaica. You know, you could travel halfway around the world for the cost of a train ticket between Manchester and London and the same Liverpool and London. Unbelievable. So I, I think it's, it's, it's failed, basically. And if you go more to a, a you know, more local uh, uh, situation, bus deregulation has failed as well. So we've taken the decision to put buses back under public control so that we can integrate them with the trams and create that London-style model. You know, where you just tap in, tap out, whatever mode you're on. And you can take as many buses or trams as you like, and only pay up to a certain level. We're on. We're well on the way now to, to to bringing that into being. So it's all about you know taking public control of the system, making it work for people. It's a public service, and it should first and foremost be that. And How big is the job you've got as as the mayor? Is it huge? Is it bigger than we think? Bigger than I thought. Oh. It was. <laughs> <laughs> See, Steve and I, you know. For, we, when we were in, we were in Westminster in that period, you know, 2016, and we were looking at these jobs coming up, and we were starting to chat. Mm, what do you reckon? What do you reckon? And we'd go for a pint a couple of times and discuss it. And um, I, you know, we were getting interested, and we were we'd fall out, we'd run our course with Westminster by that point. And um, I remember saying to Steve over a pint one night, you know what? We could have a quieter life. You know, we could <laughs> go out to gigs more. We could, oh, you know, and. And although we do go to gigs, as you know, he and I, as you, as you say, we are, you know, he is my, my, by a long way, my closest friend in politics of all the politicians that I've come to, you know, Steve is, is my sort of uh, closest. And we, um, yeah, we, we, we have a good time, but we both say, my God, we've never worked, <laughs> never worked harder. And my job, particularly, I'm police and crime commissioner. Uh, transport is a big responsibility, the fire service housing I've got a whole range of responsibilities um, and I, I, I remember uh, there was a former leader of the council here who, who had a go at me when I said uh, the job of Mayor of Greater Manchester is a cabinet level job that requires cabinet level experience I think some local government people saw that as a sort of you know, me doing them down but it, I, I stand by it and, you know, five years into doing it 
it is as demanding as the jobs I did in the British Cabinet. It's interesting because I heard a little story about you uh, because you're such a caring man. Uh, the story I heard, I'll probably be shot down on this one, uh, <laughs> I think it was one of your personal assistants, went to a restaurant not far from where you were, I think collapsed, uh, was not well. Uh, they looked after them and you went over a couple of days later to say thank you. Yeah, I think yeah, I, I think I know what you're talking about. It was wasn't somebody who worked for me. It was um, uh, so I think the, the incident you're talking about is someone who collapsed in the street in Manchester. I kind of walked past. I was going to get me dry cleaning of all things, and um, there was a, a, a amazing uh, young woman who I got to know who was doing the CPR on him, and it was outside Manchester Town Hall. And I just I ran to. Um, get a defibrillator from anyway to cut a long story short we saved him but the restaurant over the road Piccolino I don't know if you know That's it right, in Manchester yeah, on the corner yeah the, wait, the head waiter there came straight out tablecloths towels everything he was absolutely in it with with, um, with the young woman who was who was doing it and even though he, you know, and the role his customers were watching yeah, yeah, as well, was, and it was unbelievable. And I did go back in and said to him, you know, seriously, it was an amazing thing he did. That's the measure of you as a man. You mentioned the town hall. How long is it going to have the frock on it? <laughs> I saw you. It's I saw, you sent me a message about that, didn't you? Was, I was uh, flabbergasted when I said, "Because yeah. it's a beautiful town hall." Oh, it is. It is, but it will be. It, it will be even better. Um, I don't know if you've noticed there starting to open up Albert Square yeah, and yeah. that looks fantastic yeah. Uh, but yeah it's it's hard because we've all had to sort of um, grit our teeth a bit and you know obviously Manchester's lived without its prize asset for well, almost four years now uh, but it will be open in 2024 and um, I think it will then be set up for another century I'm not going to take much longer of your time. I've got Andy Burnham with me. I've got to ask uh, now, this week has been the Labour conference in Liverpool. Um, we had last week unbelievable announcements from the government about, <laughs> I'm sick of saying it, the mini-budget wasn't a mini-budget. Taking your hat off as a politician and putting it on as a father, do you think maybe they are trying and maybe they're trying something different and maybe all the pundits who've had a go at him or had a go at them I should say aren't giving them a fair crack of the whip I try and be fair Pete uh, I've got to a point in my life where I don't just do the point scoring thing if they get it right I'll, I'll say it but equally I won't sit there when they do something wrong I, I think it almost goes beyond politics what they've just done I, I think it, it fails a morality test we're in a cost of living crisis. People in this city where we, you and I are now, today, they're panicking about making it work, aren't they? They'll be going to bed worrying tonight, living out of their sort of using their microwave, not even you know cooking properly because of the way things are. This was a budget that did next to nothing for those people, but literally showered billions of pounds on the very wealthiest. And... I, I honestly don't see how that can possibly be, be justified in these, in these times. There is an urgent need to support people um, at this moment in time. And I, I think they have done the wrong thing and there's no point putting a gloss on it. They've, they've done something that is obscene, in my view. 
Um, and I, I don't think it, it, you know we could just give them the benefit of the doubt. I think it needs to be said. Has the uh, pandemic done so much disservice to every country, not just our country, for governments? Uh, it's made life very difficult, hasn't it? You had problems yourself. Yeah, it, it has, and we're still recovering from the pandemic. But that's why I think what they've done is is, is wrong because. Think about people's mental health. Mental health services need a huge amount of money, particularly children's mental health services. Think about the NHS. It's in a real, really difficult place as it recovers from the pandemic. We've talked about rail, but rail services are still in a complete mess, aren't they? You know, th- the basics are not in the right in the right place. Um, and I think I think we were more exposed to the pandemic than other countries because of some of the things that we've done in the past. So, for instance, allowing work to become more and more casual, zero hours. People in this city, because I remember talking to Steve at the time, true of Manchester too, even if they were ill with COVID, they couldn't go home because they they knew they wouldn't be paid. But that's their reality outside of a pandemic as well. You know, even if they're ill, they can't go home from work. And I think we have kind of been running things. We've been running people into the ground and our resilience to face the pandemic was much lower. And, you know, you now look at the cost of living crisis, all those essentials, water, gas, electric, buses, train. We sold all of those off, didn't we? And the price of those things... To countries abroad, To countries abroad as well. (laughs) And the price of those things has gone up and up. Has the service got any better? Well, you and I have just said no, certainly not in the case of the trains. And I just think we've, we've kind of wound up in a position where... Chickens have come home to roost as far as I'm concerned. And I, I will give the government some leeway because the pandemic's been hard, but I think we made it harder for ourselves by some bad judgments uh, through the 80s and the 90s. And actually, let's be honest, the government I was in didn't do enough to reverse it. Last question. Um, something that I'm very cross about. Uh, luckily, I've got a little bit of money and I survived, but five and a half million plus didn't get furlough and have had no justice at all. Uh, many, many people in the industry of show business, um, stagehands, people like that, it, and there's no sign of ever, ever getting any help. Uh, honestly, I, I, I think you're, you're right to not let that issue go. Um, there was, well, the excluded campaign it was, you know, th- I think they estimated three million, but it may well, as you say, have been, have been more... And these are freelancers or people who were newly self-employed. They got nothing in that pandemic, absolutely nothing. And this is the thing that troubles me about the times they're in. It's, we're in such divided times, aren't we, that, you know, some people will be helped, but you can't be... Oh, I, we, Steve Rotherham and I did a huge amount with the Excluded campaign through that, that whole experience. And just now to say... And now those same businesses, those small businesses, the self-employed and freelancers... Many, many in our cities, by the way, like, you, you know, we're creative cities, aren't we? So many people like your good self uh, in Manchester as well. You know, we, 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 we thrive on that and we want those people to be supported. So they have got a hangover from the pandemic with their finances and bump now we're into a cost of living crisis. And it's why I say I just don't think the government has got its priorities right. You know, you can't be showering money on people who've already got plenty of it when others just haven't got enough to afford the basics. So, you're, yeah, I, I, this country, I'm afraid I'll finish with quite a big point, but it does need um, radical change back to helping ordinary people make things work. Ordinary people at the moment can't make things work. 
and it does need it does need radical change. And maybe maybe someone at some point will step forward and uh, and do a bit of it. Andy Burnham, I'll finish with a bigger a bigger statement. Uh, I hope I live to see you as prime minister. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Pete. And if you enjoy that, we've got some great podcasts. Why not just subscribe? It's free.